You're listening to From the Burgundy Chairs, a podcast for health system leaders created by Santis Health. Hi, everyone. My name is Ross Wallace, and I'm a principal here at Santis. Today, as vaccination numbers rise and this country emerges from the worst of the COVID-19 pandemic, we're discussing the Canadian Agency for Drugs and Technologies in Health and how CADETH is incorporating key lessons learned as it prepares to refresh its own strategy later this year. Before we get started, I want to introduce our guest. We're joined today by Suzanne McGurn. Suzanne joined Cadeth in July 2020 as its President and Chief Executive Officer. She brings to the role a deep understanding of the complex issues surrounding the management of pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and clinical interventions in Canadian healthcare systems. Before joining Cadeth, Ms. McGurn's distinguished career spanned clinical practice, patient support, and senior roles in government. Within the Ontario Ministry of Health, she served as the Assistant Deputy Minister of the Drugs and Devices Division and the Executive Officer of Ontario Public Drug Programs. She also led the implementation of the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance and served as its first chair. Thanks so much for joining me today, Suzanne. Thanks, Ross. It's great to be here. Um, So many, many things we're going to talk about, and I appreciate uh, all the different directions we could take this. But perhaps if I can, I will start on a fascinating conversation that you had a couple of weeks ago with Gillian Lang, the head of NICE in the UK. Um, Your discussion sort of touched on some of her and their COVID learnings, some of the commonalities between your organizations and and some new strategic directions in HTA, which is a far from uh, Canadian practice, actually a global body of work and, and global trends and dynamics. Um, when you think about that international HTA landscape and, and perhaps some of the signals that you see outside our borders that might be relevant to Canada, what, what's interesting to you? And perhaps even more broadly, what did you take out of that conversation with Jillian that uh, you've been reflecting on ever since? Uh, thanks, Ross, for that question. I have to say um, the opportunity to interview uh, Jillian was great. And uh, she's someone I've been following since my arrival, certainly getting a chance with her starting in her role just before me. It's the very first time I read a blog by her. It was almost like reading what my own notes had been on my first uh, few weeks in the job. So it was great to be able to, I would say, both reflect on what they're doing, but also as sort of a a touch point to, to validate the things that we're seeing here in Canada. You know, the highlights for me are, are ones that I think I'm hearing not just from chatting with Jillian in that podcast, but any international event that I'm participating in. So, you know, the need for a different level of cooperation. Um, you know, we're all heading into a time period where there's more being asked of us than um, ever before. Uh, the timeliness of needing to get that information to people to make decisions and sort of being able to be really thoughtful about the efficiency in which we do our jobs um, as we all struggle to come out of not just what has been a health uh, impact of the pandemic, but an economic impact. Um, you know, the other thing we talked a lot about was real world evidence and the fact that really we've got to we've got to be able to take what we do well and put it through the life cycle of products and realize that there are going to be increasingly products coming to us that whether they're devices or pharmaceuticals that don't have the same rigor uh, rigorous uh, gold standard random clinical trials, randomized clinical trials that we saw five or 10 years ago, um, we we are going to have to start figuring out how to do our job differently. But the other couple of things that really caught my attention, both in reading their strategic report and in the conversation is about relationships, um, about the importance of relationships with industry, with patients, with citizens and clinicians. And how does that translate into, you know, dealing with issues of equity And lastly, one of the things that I noticed as soon as I came to Cadeth and I was trying to think about the work I was doing here, um, 
and what would have made it easier for me in my former job was about how do we communicate about the evidence and how do we actually move evidence into execution um, on the ground in a health system that is so diverse as what we see here in Canada. And I think, you know, Jillian was able to reflect on some of the things that they have in her environment that are different than ours, such as the clinical practice guidelines. So a lot of key takeaways from the conversation. Um, maybe I'll, I'll pick up on a couple of the things you just said that I think are really interesting. And the, the, I'll start with the equity piece because it's not always or perhaps sort of historically or traditionally a frame or a lens that, that the business of HTA has, has perhaps been involved in. And, and it clearly came through in that conversation. And it clearly is permeating many aspects of biopharmaceutical and, and medical device policy across the country. Um, do you want to unpack that notion at all and, and um, think about ways in which perhaps it's already working its way through uh, Cadiff in the 12 months you've been there? So I think the issue of equity has always been there. And I, I think, you know, there's a little bit of a misnomer in the world of HTA. Um, I think if if you've heard me speak before, you know, in the early days, which I would say for HTA is now over 30 years ago, the real focus was on sort of that um, additional hurdle beyond the regulator to get access. But the actual way in which HTA has been done has continued to evolve over those 30 years. Yet what most people reflect on is is clinical effectiveness and cost as sort of the big pillars and everything else as sort of a little tiny pillar beside it. And what, you know, my experience has been is that, you know, people are getting better at the the softer evidence, looking at the uh, quantitative information, being able to ask different questions. And I would just give a, you know, a practical example where, you know, five or more years ago, uh, let's say the frequency with which a a pharmaceutical um, needed to be taken might be considered a convenience factor. Um, When really, it's a really significant consideration if you're working in a long-term care home, the number of times that you may have to um, try and administer a medication to an individual with significant dementia. If you're an individual living in a marginalized community or perhaps living on the street and you only have maybe one meal a day, um, being able to take your medicine with food is hugely different than being able to take a medicine four times a day. So I think there's lots that has started to be has started to have conversations about, but there's so much more there that can be done. And I think every organization worldwide that has a a history of colonialization of colonial impact really does have to be reflective about what it is that they're doing now that perhaps unconsciously is based on a set of biases that, you know, we've never surfaced and explored. There's no magic switch we're going to turn to get it right. But I think the more that we raise awareness of it, the better job we'll be able to do in looking at devices, interventions, and pharmaceuticals uh, from a vantage point that that includes clinical effectiveness and cost effectiveness, but also that much bigger wraparound um, impact to patients and subgroups of patients. You talk about all the different sort of... Um fields on which you play, you know, devices, interventions, uh, biopharmaceuticals, and, you know, then there's the whole sort of digital health virtual care piece, which um, has components or, or, you know, elements in, in maybe all of those worlds. Um, one of the things that struck me as well from the conversation with Jillian is, is this notion that kind of the one size fits all approach to HDA, if it was, if it was ever okay before, it's not going to be okay going forward. Um, and I wondered if you thought a little bit about uh, a, a kind of an inexorable rebalancing of perhaps where the weight and the attention is going to go across all the work that Cadet does. Because my hunch is if you ask lots of people about sort of what you do the most, they will say 
oh, you know, biopharmaceuticals, you know, till the till the day is long. Um, and though that's a fantastic foundation to grow off of, my sense is that there's probably going to be some element of rebalancing or or a certainly wider nets being cast in terms of where you want to go next. Yeah, I mean, I think uh I guess I would would start off by saying is that I think Cata's work in the in the biopharmaceutical space and pharmaceuticals generally is much better known um, simply because we've you know we have a very specific integral process as part of the of the pathway for a, a pharmaceutical to make it to patients and being able to help jurisdictions make uh, their decisions on the devices side. I think you know where the real opportunity there is that that this is a moment in time where really different decisions are being made. They're being made differently because of the pandemic. And I suspect they'll be made um, equally differently in the future because we've realized that um, there's some gaps in our system. And we have this moment in time to be able to see what we can do differently. And I think the industry has really stepped up and demonstrated when faced with a challenge, they can harness their collective energy and pull together. Um, But just like the pandemic has highlighted, there's always differing opinions on all of these topics. So I think for, for Cadith, it's, it's really going to be about figuring out how do you have um, the same impact in the medical devices, technologies, and interventions that we've been able to make in the um, pharmaceutical space um, in what is an even more diffuse system. If you look, you know, every jurisdiction has a drug plan that you can point to, at least as a starting point for a conversation on pharmaceuticals. In every jurisdiction, it's a different lay of the land if you're looking at procurement. Who's procuring? Is it hospitals? Is it the government? And that's one of the things where we actually did see some learnings from the pandemic as well is what happens when there's a more coordinated approach to procurement. So huge opportunity in in those spaces, but it will come with probably lots of lots of learning and probably some failures, but a huge place for us to be able to make a difference, um, you know, in the next, I would say as, as early as next year. Um, and hoping that some of our work with NICE will actually lead us into being able to do some collaborative work in the digital space, for example. So you've, you've touched on the pandemic, um, which sort of took, took hold or, or arrived on our shores even before you'd actually taken this role on. So you, you saw it a little bit from the outside and then you came in and saw it, I'm sure, with a very front row seat. Um, you know, beyond what you've talked about in terms of the collaboration and coordination pieces, are there any other reflections on sort of helping to steer the organization or watching the organization respond over the last sort of 12 months or so um, that, that you'd want to sort of surface in this discussion? Well, I mean, I think it would be a, a missed opportunity to say that the pandemic has, has, has not, has been, sorry, the pandemic has been more than transformational. Um, healthcare won't be the same. And I think that's a, that's a good thing. Uh, we've, we've had the chance to learn a lot. And, you know, I think every, every time an organization goes into a stress circumstance, we learn good things as well as where our weaknesses are. I certainly would want to be subject to a pandemic as the way to do that stressor ever again in my lifetime or the next generation's lifetime. Um, but I do think that, you know, COVID has, has put a huge spotlight on the role of evidence in decision making. As, you, as you've already mentioned, people kind of knew what that looked like in the drug space. But people don't really know what that looks like in day in and day out government work, which I would have seen in my former job. And I think that, you know, it's been a great opportunity for people to learn that evidence isn't stagnant, 
Um, it is also evolving. And that as evidence evolves, decisions need to evolve. But I think we've also learned that having a, a way to effectively communicate about evidence is a real challenge. And it is a place where we really do need to sort of kick up our game because it can be so confusing to the public or to clinicians or to patients. And the last thing you want people to be doing is worrying that they're not getting what they need when they're in the midst of dealing with a healthcare issue. I think the other thing that, um, you know, we've talked a lot about over the course of the last while, collaborating, learning from the pandemic, um, you know, proving that we could do things we thought were impossible. Uh, but one of the things that will not go away is fundamentally the need to make decisions. Um, you know, there's no circumstance that any of us have in our personal lives or in our business life, nor in, in any other uh, world where we ever have enough uh, resources to do everything that's ahead of us. And as the pandemic has pointed out challenges in long-term care and in indigenous care and in mental health, um, finding ways to make sure that we have, we can prioritize and provide support to all of those means that the evidence we give to decision makers carries even more weight as they have to make those incredibly difficult decisions going forward. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been reflecting on, it's, you know, a few years ago, it used to be the only way that healthcare could could get better was to talk about adding resources to it. And I think, you know, that was the days when you were seeing health budgets grow by double digits year over year over year. And it took a moment in time where people started talking about the triple aim and then the quadruple aim, which was about doing things differently for the same or less cost, but with the same quality outcomes. And I think that's really going to be a philosophy we have to think about going forward in the work that we do. How do we look at all of the choices ahead of us in a way to be able to have a better outcome while maintaining, while maintaining an economic reality that can be supported across all of the health systems and governments with the competing demands being placed on them? On that question about sort of the, the infinite demands and finite resources, Suzanne, you, um, you alluded to your previous role, and certainly you came into the sort of leadership of Cadith from a, a very particular provincial vantage point, and that probably gives you a unique set of, of perspectives as you, as you sit in the chair you're in now. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of uh, the, the process that brought you into this role, and, and were there pieces that you looked around your career and said, you know what, there's some unfinished business here that, that I, you know, if I could elevate beyond pan-Canadian uh, to or take take pan Canadian to a new level. There's some things that um, that I that I feel like I'm not completely done with uh, from your role as executive officer. Um, how how did you sort of find yourself where you are now? What were the drivers that made you say I'm actually going to do this? Thanks very much. Well, that's an interesting story because I I uh, maybe I'll just actually go back to the beginning on this one, which is I I actually had the opportunity to take on the role in Ontario uh, because of it of a departure for someone. So I took it on actually as a you know, could you step in and do this for a while while we, you know, decide where we're going? And I have to admit, much to my surprise, I fell completely in love uh, with the work of the pharmaceuticals. It's it's so fascinating. Um, in most of the other jobs that I've had in healthcare, they really have been contained within the whether it was within a organizational wall or within the provincial wall. You often had similar problems, and you worked with your FPT counterparts. But never did I have the opportunity to work in a place where the, the, you know, the work that you were doing was with large multinational organizations. You were dealing with, with products that 
you know, just at the time I was coming in, were starting to cost almost the same amount as some very significant hospital equipment, whether it was an MRI or a scanner. Um, We were talking about products that would be taken by individuals um, that could cost that that same amount in one year. Um, And at the same time, what I really fell in, you know, fell genuinely in love with was the, you know, the absolutely amazing collaborations amongst the uh, PTs um, with the establishment of the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance. It was a really unique opportunity for us to find our way on a common, on a common topic um, and have huge impacts. You know, I have a, a lot of pride in the work that was done um, by, the, by the team members and the governance of the Pan-Canadian Pharmaceutical Alliance, you know, dealing with uh, what was sort of the single largest budget item that had ever faced us, which were the hepatitis C drugs. And yet over a very short period of time, um, we were able to, you know, uh, secure those products for Canadians and roll them out in a sequenced way. Um, we also started to work um, on um, making sure that it wasn't just Ontario that often had the greatest leverage um, with the pharmaceutical industry, was actually able to use it, its conversations with industry to help jurisdictions that didn't have that same leverage. And uh, for me, you know, I will say that that's amazing work. I, you know, I won't, I, I don't know that I'll be able to replicate it, but I certainly um, look at Cadith as an opportunity, not just in the pharmaceutical space, but to be able to take the learnings that I had um, and be able to look at what are, what are the things that are going to make our health system better in the future? And what's going to make our health system better is in the future is by people working collectively better together. And I think Cadith can do that. I think in, you know, long before it was Vogue, I was, um, you know, long before a conversation about a Canadian drug agency was a top of mind. Um, I was talking about, we need to think about the end-to-end process of the pharmaceutical space, um, even just connecting the dots ourselves um, in a way that we could have a coherent conversation and you could explain it to your mother or your grandmother or your neighbor. And so as I come into Cadith, although the pharmaceutical side, you know, was my, was my initial interest, I think we have a, as much of an opportunity or more with the breadth of the devices portfolio and um, new interventions. And they're, you know, really, you know, being able to figure out how do you get disruptive therapies into our healthcare system in a way that makes us all winners. Um, you know, there's always going to be a tension between um, where the rubs are in the system because nobody likes change. Uh, But without us being able to find ways to be able to get those disruptive technologies into our healthcare system, um, we're only going to be making changes around the edge. And I think the pandemic has given us a moment in time to really do a complete rethink in a transformational way of what we do in the healthcare system. Um, it's a very crowded sort of policy landscape in which Cadith operates. You mentioned the Canadian Drug Agency, nascent though it is, you mentioned um, PCPA. Uh, there's obviously work around a, a national strategy for uh, drugs for rare diseases. There's PMPRB as another major player. When you sort of think about the constellation of actors, um, there's probably opportunities in your mind and maybe complexities or, or challenges. Um, do you want to reflect 
for us sort of any of your thoughts on on um, the multiplicity of all of the kind of policy shapers and drivers and, and how you sort of fit within that and, uh, and, and your role as um, maybe first among equals for this conversation, at least. Well, I guess I would start off by saying it is really exciting. I mean, I'm sort of a, a closet policy wonk. I, you know, my background is nursing. So if you had told me that this is sort of where I would be spending my time a few years ago, it would have surprised me. Um, but I, I think that uh, we have the opportunity where, you know, where all of these players, I mean, and if you were to ask us sitting in a room without wearing our hats, without trying to solve a problem, what are we all in this for? Um, we're all in this to make the system better. Um, you know, each of us have additional benefits to the job we do or additional considerations, public policy considerations, financial considerations for industry, um, patient considerations, which are are individual people, but, you know, the families and caregivers. So I think we have this, this moment where um, the tectonic plates are moving in a way that, you know, we really can leverage um, what we've all done well to do it better. I mean, the Canadian Drug Agency is certainly an integral part of what the federal government is advancing in its pharmaceutical space. And for a whole bunch of reasons, whether that's a, a, a concrete um, uh, uh, organization in the future, whether it's something that's more virtual, I, you know, I, I think I'd leave that to the leader of that organization. Um, Susan Fitzpatrick is a strong, experienced leader and uh, I'm pleased to see that she's overseeing that work. Um, I think it's premature to say exactly where Cadith would fit into a future, but I think Cadith is already an equal amongst the players. Um, you know, the relationship in, between Cadith, the PCPA, Ines, PMPRB, the health regulators, the private, even the private insurers um, are ones that have evolved over the last five years. And again, we certainly have areas where we have differences, but there's so much opportunity for us to do our work differently together and for us to all find successes. I do think, though, that sometimes what people forget when we're having these conversations is that Canada is somewhat unique, you know, compared to some jurisdictions. When, when you hear our colleagues in industry talk and compare us to other jurisdictions, some of them are the same, where they have uh, subgroups and regional decisions that have to be made. But in our world, um, we do have federal, provincial, and territorial relationships on health, and we need to respect those. And I think for Cadith, what, you know, what we're valued for is that we do understand the complexity of the intergovernmental relationships between all of the players. People trust us to be able to play a key role now and into the future. And so um, you know, we, we have the opportunity to help make things better for everyone from the, from the patients all the way up to the decision maker. And I think if we continue to use our scientific expertise and our strong relationship, and we continue to retool our organization to the evolving uh, landscape, we'll continue to be called on to support pharmaceutical work in many ways, shapes, and forms. Um, I think, you know, whether it's stakeholder engagement, evidence appraisal, or new methodologies. And, and maybe I would just pause there to, to comment probably one of my, my most, um, 
I've had a number of learnings since I've arrived here, but one, one of particular interest that I didn't fully appreciate when I was um, in the jurisdiction was the, the degree to which that the deliberations about the drugs, much like you hear them talk about the evidence tables on the news these days, um, are actually based on science. Health technology assessment is a science. The way in which we deliberate is a science. And so understanding the methodologies under it, it, it is more than just making a tweak here and making a tweak there to be able to respond to the various inquiries that come in. We have to be able to, 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 to both reflect on it in a, a thoughtful way, but then also to build it into us, to our, our, our processes in a way that we can continue to be reliable. And so for me, that's been a real learning. And I think something that, you know, we need to do a better job at communicating. Um, there are methodologies under these and CAT, and CAT certainly pulls its weight in the international world on uh, um, ability to bring forward new and innovative methodologies. I mean, even Harvard um, uh, use, referenced the word searches that Cadith, um Library Services are doing as the gold standard during COVID. So, you know, there's lots that we do well here, and it's learning about how to communicate that to people so that they can understand that there are connections rather than what it feels like when you're in the outside looking in right now, that, you know, the phrase I hear often is silos. Mm. We really aren't. There really is a significant amount of horizontal communication, but we don't have an effective way to communicate that out to clinicians, to patients, to the public in a way that makes sense to them. So obviously, I mean, it, it, lots of different levels there that I'd love to dig into, but the, um, you've sort of be, begun to articulate a little bit of, of your sort of future facing um, priorities and, and sort of thoughts. And certainly that communications enhancement piece has kind of pulled through a number of your answers to, to a couple of these questions. I mean, you know, last year, Cadith made this sort of, I think, quite reasonable and astute decision to push pause on its own strategic planning process. So you now find yourself in the sort of early stages of a, of a plan that will be ideally finished before the end of the year and, and come into effect sort of next April 1st. Um, you know, not to, not to, 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 you know, give too many spoilers here, but um, are there any sort of emerging kind of priorities or pillars or, or thoughts about kind of areas of focus or emphasis that, um, that have really sort of crystallized in your mind already through this process and you think would be, uh, would be telling to unpack a bit? I, you know, the strategic planning um, during a pandemic is, I will say, both uh, stressful and humorous at the same time. I think in fairness to this organization, they were doing lots of this thinking before I ever arrived on the doorstep. And certainly, if you reflect on the previous strategic plan here at Cadith, um, it was already headed in a similar direction to what you see coming out of the NICE uh, strategic plan. But it's really about how do you crystallize that um, for a changing healthcare system? Um, you know, the challenges that we've already touched on, expensive, complex drugs and treatment, you know, even just thinking back to less than probably two and a half years ago, tackling uh, CAR T cells, lots of promising treatments with positive signals, but high uncertainty, a digital revolution, apps, AI, 3D printing and wearables. I was on, a, on an event on Friday and, you know, one of the speakers talked about having a 3D printer in your house that would print your medications for you to take. And certainly sort of really pressing the, I, I, I am sufficiently of, of age that 
I go back to thinking about the Jetsons um, as a cartoon and what the future would look like. So having, you know, being able to print your own medicines at home is something completely that, you know, had never even made it into my reflection. Um, but now, you know, here we are, and we are on the cusp of that type of change being right, right on our doorstep. Um, so I think between sort of what, what was already coming down the pipeline, what we've learned from the pandemic, um, I think it would be reasonable to say that of the things that we, we know we're going to have to keep um, into the future is figuring out how do we keep pace with change, um, adapting how, how we do our work and what we do to meet the needs of decision makers. And one of the things you may have heard me say in my interview with Jillian was I was quite intrigued by her, um, her nice uh, launch where she talked about uh, the evolution of HTA, not as a trade-off between quality and timeliness, but that we needed to be able to do both. Mm -hmm. And I think, so keeping pace with change while maintaining a high quality of outcomes um, of our work so that decision makers can rely on us is got to be top of mind for us in our strategic plan. I think the other thing is, you know, moving um, more aggressively and leading, leaning forward into the life cycle space and really figuring out where to use real world evidence in health technology assessments. Um, it's not feasible to do it for everything. So where does it make a difference? And how do we harness it in a way that we can all have comfort that it's being done in a way that's reliable and that we can make decisions on it and people can feel that that evidence and consideration is weighted um, appropriately in the HTA process. As you said earlier, um, Ross, people think that, you know, clinical and cost effectiveness sort of way heavy and everything else is a little bit. Um, so we need to find a way to be able to really um, embed the real world evidence and inform aspects of our work. And I, I see that not just from the high uncertainty, but for validating quality of, work, of our work. You know, what happened based on some of our recommendations and did what we anticipate unfold in the way it, we anticipated it would? Or are there learnings that will help us do our jobs better? And then lastly, I would say um, something that certainly I've brought to previous jobs and I'm pleased to see is top of mind in Cadith as well is stakeholder engagement. I think we, you know, there are things that we will always disagree with or perhaps not be looking at from the same vantage point with some of our stakeholders, but we will only do our job better if we find ways to work with the health system partners, with industry, with patient groups, um, with families, with caregivers um, in a way that allows us um, you know, to have the thoughtful dialogues because sometimes it's we're, we're already trying to formulate our answer before we've actually listened. So I think that stakeholder engagement and active listening is going to be important and it's going to be important earlier in the process. So moving things upstream, but it's also going to be important later in the process, as I said, looking to see what ha actually happened. I think, you know, there's always a tendency to think of the slippery slope and what the risk is of making some of our decisions. Um, but the status quo comes with its own risks. And so I think we have to become really thoughtful about appraising our work and appraising ourselves. And uh, I think that will serve us well into the future. And as I've often said, and, and if you've heard me speak um, in other podcasts or um, at events since I've arrived, relationships matter now more than ever. And I think 
the pandemic has taught us that, you know, waiting to get together once a year at an event or a quarterly formal meeting is probably not enough for us to build the kind of relationships that will serve us well into the future. So engagement's a huge opportunity for CADA. And I think the patients, the clinicians, decision makers are counting on CADA to connect the dots, to do more find different ways to work together and to achieve better outcome. So I'm really excited about what the strategic plan um, is looking like, at least at this point of the process. And I suspect it will be even more exciting than, you know, what I've seen to date. As you, um, so thanks for that sort of robust and thoughtful answer, Suzanne, as you were talking, there's a couple of things that, that jumped out at me. I mean, the first is this, you know, when you're doing strategic planning, that, that classics um, stop, start, do different adage. I mean, the improvement is exciting the starting is probably the most exciting, but then there's the question of what do you want to look at and go, yeah, that doesn't actually make sense for where the world is evolving and where we're evolving within it. And I think that'll be the interesting thing to, you know, that'll be another one of the interesting things that, that comes out of your deliberations is, is what are you going to do less of um, or later uh, or, or um, in a more reduced or, or nuanced ways. Um, and the second one is the elevation of sort of engagement and communications in parallel to, to, so to, to the strategy itself, that not just the doing, but the, the talking and the, um, the engaging and the, the sort of sitting down with folks along the way. I think those are those are kind of powerful counterpoints to each other. You don't want to get one out of whack with the other or else um, your success on either front becomes compromised. Maybe um, I'll just ask you one last question and then we'll free you to the rest of your day. And, and thank you for the generosity of your time and, and the, the insights that you've shared with us. Um, trying to think about the right time frame, but let's say two years. If we uh, were fortunate enough to host you a couple years from now and, and you had a chance to reflect on kind of either indicators or milestones or sort of signs of progress, what, what do you hope you would be able to tell us in terms of kind of the 2023 version of where you're at? What, what will you hope to sort of reflect back on over, over 24 months from, from now as, uh, as a sign that things evolve the way you hope and plan for? So as you can tell, I, you know, lots of, lots of thoughts and ideas, but, you know, top of mind for me would, would be, you know, first off, we can only do our jobs with, with a great workforce and a great team here at Cadiz. So uh, the first thing that, you know, I'd want to say is, you know, finding the right ways to, to recognize the value of the organization as a whole. It's a tremendous team here who are so passionate about the work they do. And so I'd like to be able to, to talk about, you know, as, as, you know, was raised in our, my previous podcast, how do you get people um, to recognize the, you know, the excitement? It's really hard to change. It's not a natural human condition to thrive and change. And, uh, and yet we, we know it has to be done. So the first thing would be, I, you know, I'd like to still be talking about a really passionate and excited team here at Cadiz. Uh, the second thing that um, I'd like to, you know, reflect on is that, we have been able to make progress, whether it's at Cadiz alone or internationally, on how do we um, address the issues of equity and um, be able to point to real changes that we've made, even if we're still in progress, of how, how we've been able to take um, the things that we've always taken for granted and really put them through a thoughtful challenge function to make sure that we aren't inadvertently biasing um, uh, our work uh, based on a, a set of, of preconditions. So I think that that would be really important to me. And then thirdly, um, I'd like to, to, to be able to say that decision makers, regardless of the decisions that they've made, that the decision makers have taken Cadiz advice 
and the scientific rigor that, you know, we've um, put into our work uh, to help them make decisions. There's always more than one consideration, you know, as a, a, when I first went into government, you know, I'd been one of those people who would have probably been considered a lobbyist from my, my former job. And, you know, I thought I had the right answer to every question. And yet when you get inside government and you understand how, how you have to look at things from a complete 360, um, it, it sometimes becomes very daunting. And I want Kadith to make sure that it has a, has a place in bringing that evidence forward, regardless of the decisions that are made, because there are other pieces of evidence that, that people need to take into consideration. And I'd like, you know, the profile, um, as we talk about the familiarity that people have with Caddis role in the pharmaceutical space, I'd like to make sure that jurisdictions um, and, and the country as a whole understands that we have, uh, although different, the same capacity in the non-pharmaceutical space and that, you know, the opportunity for change, as I said earlier, in the medical devices, new technologies and intervention is going to really drive health system transformation. And so Cadith being there and providing that great advice is something that would give me a lot of pride two years from now. And I guess last but not least, um, that patients, industry, um, stakeholders, you know, would talk about Cadith as a place that listens to them. As I said, we may not always arrive at the same outcomes, but I do truly value um, uh, the opportunity to learn from others and that, you know, maybe we'll find a way to be able to, to communicate about HTA in a way that becomes as comfortable and familiar as, um, you know, the consumer's guide to which car to buy this year. Um, what is it that we're looking at? Why does it matter? And why is it that we've made the recommendation that we've made? And I think that, you know, would make me make me feel very good about what we've accomplished in the time that, um, you know, has elapsed in those two years. Uh, you talk, Suzanne, you talk about people, um, people listening and feeling listened to. Um, I have no doubt that there will be lots of folks listening to this conversation and, and paying close attention to what you say and what Kata says over the coming months, especially as we get to the point where your, uh, your new strategy sees the light of day. Um, and when it does, uh, we would love nothing more than for you to come back and, uh, and talk about it specifically um, and all the things that are now uh, still a bit uh, nascent and, and um, evolving. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for this conversation. I always take a ton out of every time um, we get to put our heads together and uh, this has been no exception whatsoever. So um, we appreciate the time, the thoughtfulness and uh, the ideas and uh, we hope we have a chance to do it again soon. Thanks a lot, Ross. I really appreciated the conversation and uh, look forward to talking to you again. Thanks for listening. You can find this episode and more on our website at santashealth.ca and on our Twitter at Santas Health. This has been from the Burgundy Chairs.